Chapter 16 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 16 As we emerged from the Hotel Maurice, I turned instinctively to the left. Parago drew me to the right. Henceforward, said he, I resume the Paris which is my birthright. We will forget for a moment that there are such places as the Boulevard Saint-Michel and the Rue des Saladiers. We walked along the Rue de Rivoli and taking the Rue Royale, passed the Madeleine, and arrived at the Café de la Paix. It was a broiling afternoon. The cool terrace of the café invited the hot wayfarer to repose. Master, said I, isn't it almost time for your absinthe? He raised his lemon kids as if he would ban the place. My little Astico, I have abjured absinthe and forsworn cafés. I have broken my new porcelain pipe and have cut my fingernails. As I enter on the path of happiness, I scatter the dregs and shreds and clippings of the past behind me. I divest myself of all the crapulous years. If he had divested himself of the superfluous trappings of respectability beneath which he was perspiring freely, I thought he would have been happier. The sight of the umbrella alone made one feel moist, to say nothing of the spats. We might have some grenadine syrup, I suggested ironically. Willingly, said he. So we sat and drank grenadine syrup and water. He gave me the impression of a cropped lion sucking lollipops. It is peculiarly nasty and unsatisfying, he remarked after a sip, but doubtless I shall get used to it. I shall have to get used to a devil of a lot of things, my son. As soon as the period of her widowhood has elapsed, I hope to marry Madame de Vernouille. Marry Madame de Vernouille? I cried, the possibility of such an occurrence never having crossed my mind. Why not? When two people of equal rank love and are free to marry, why should they not do so? Have you any objection? No, master, said I. I shall resume my profession, he announced, lighting a cigarette, and in the course of a year or two regain the position to which an ancient prix de Rome is entitled. I was destined that day to go from astonishment to astonishment. You are pre de Rome, master? Yes, my son, in architecture. He was clothed in a new and sudden radiance. To a Paris art student, a pre de Rome is what a field marshal is to a private soldier, a lord chancellor to the eater of dinners in the temple. I must confess that though my passionate affection for him never wavered, yet my childish reverence had of late waned in intensity. I saw his faults which is incompatible with true hero-worship. But now he sprang to cloud summits of veneration. I looked awe-stricken at him, and beheld nothing but an ancient prix de Rome. Then I remembered our enthusiasm over the palettes of dipsomania. "'They said you were an architect that night at the Café Delphine,' I exclaimed. "'I was a genius,' said Padigo modestly. "'I used to think in palaces. Most men's palaces are little buildings written big.' My spore buildings were palaces reduced. I could have roofed in the whole of Paris with a dome. My first commission was to put a new roof on a Baptist chapel in Ireland. It was then that I met Madame de Vernouille after an interval of five years. We are second cousins. Her father and my mother were first cousins. I have known her since she was born. When I was at Rugby, I spent most of my holidays at her house. You must take all this into account, my little Astico, 
before you begin to criticise my plans for the future? By this time, the nerve or brain cell whereby one experiences a sensation of amazement was numb. If Paddocker had informed me that he had been a boon companion of King Qua and had built the pyramids of Egypt, I should not have been surprised. I could only recall the various facts. Parago was at rugby. Parago was Joanna's second cousin. Parago was a prix de Rome. Parago was a genius who put a new roof to a Baptist chapel in Ireland. Parago was going to marry Joanna. How he proposed to, to start in practice at his age, with no connection, I did not at the moment inquire. Neither did Parago. It was Parago's easy way to leap to ends and let the means to take care of themselves. He drained his glass meditatively, and then, with a wry face, spat on the ground. If I don't have a cognac, my little Astico, said he, I shall be sick. Tomorrow I may be able to swallow syrup without either salivation or the adventitious aid of alcohol. He summoned the languid waiter and ordered fine champagne. Everything seemed languid this torrid afternoon, except the British or American tourists who passed by with Baedekers under their arms. The cab horses in the file opposite us dropped their heads and the glazed-hatted cabman regarded the baking place de l'Opera with no more than their usual apathy. It looked more like the marketplace of a sleepy provincial town than the heart of Paris. When the waiter had brought the little glass in a saucer, and the verseur had poured out the brandy. Parago gulped it down and cleared his throat noisily. I drowsed in my chair, feeling comfortably tired after my all-night journey. Suddenly I wakened to the fact that Parago was telling me the story of Joanna and the Comte de Vanoui. She was exquisite. She was fragrant. She was an English rosebud wet with morning dew. She had all manner of attributes with which I was perfectly well acquainted. They loved with the ardour of two young and noble souls. Your ordinary Englishman would not thus proclaim the nobility of his soul, but Paragor, remember, was half French, and Gascon to boot, and the other half Irish. It was more than love, it was a consuming passion, which was odd in the case of an English rosebud wet with morning dew. However, I suppose Parico meant that he swept the beloved maiden off her feet with his own vehemence, and indeed she must have loved him truly. He was fresh from the Villa Medici, the paradise where all the winners of the Prix de Rome in the various arts complete their training. He had won an important competition. Fortune smiled on him. He had only to rule lines on drawing paper to become one of the great ones of the earth. He became engaged to Joanna. Now, Joanna's father, Simon Rushworth, was a London solicitor in very fashionable practice. A man of false geniality, said Parago, who smiled at you with lips that seemed always to be looking at some hell over your shoulder. He also promoted companies, and the Comte de Vernoui, an Anglo-French financier, stood ever by his elbow, using him as his tool and a dupe and draw in general of chestnuts from the fire. The Comte wanted to marry Joanna, which was absurd seeing that I was his rival, said Parago simply. One of Mr. Rushworth's companies failed. Mr. Rushworth's fashionable clients grew alarmed. He gave a party in honour of Joanna's engagement and invited all his clients. Ugly rumours spread among the guests. The presage of disaster was in the air. Parago began to suspect the truth. It was a hateful party. 
The band in the garden played selections from Orphie or Orfer, and the mocking refrain accompanied the last words he was to have with Joanna. The Comte de Venouille called him aside, explained Rushworth's position. Ten thousand pounds of his client's money, which he held in trust, had gone in the failure of the company. If that amount was not at his disposal the next morning, he was finished, snuffed out. It appeared that no one in Paris or London would lend him the money, his credit being gone. Unless Monsieur de Nerac could find the ten thousand pounds, there was the jail yawning with horrible certainty for Monsieur de Nerac's prospective father-in-law. As Parago's patrimony, invested in French government securities, was not a third of this son, he could do nothing but wring his hands in despair and call on Providence and the Comte de Venouille. The former turned a deaf ear. The latter declared himself a man of business and not a philanthropist. He was ready, however, to purchase an option on the young lady's affections. Did not Monsieur de Nerac know what an option was? He would explain. He drafted the famous contract. In return for Parago's signature, he would hand him a cheque drawn in favour of Simon Rushworth. Non de new, cried Parago, banging the marble table with his fist. Do you see in what a vice he held me? He was a devil, that man. The only human trait about him was a passion for rare apes, of which he had a collection at Nevre. Thank heaven they are dead. Thank heaven he is dead. Thank heaven he lost most of the money for which he preyed on his kind. He was a vulture. A scaly-headed vulture. He was the carrion kite above every rotten financial concern in London and Paris. That which went near to ruin my poor, vain fool of a father-in-law filled his bulging pockets. I hated him living, and I hate him dead. He tore open his frock coat, and pushed the flat-brimmed silk hat to the back of his head, and waved his lemon kids in his old extravagant gestures. What did that stolen ten thousand pounds matter to him? It mattered prison to Rushworth, Joanna's father. Think of the horror of it. She would have died from the disgrace. Her mother, too. And the devil jested Astico. He talked of Rushworth being smitten with the slings and black arrows of outrageous fortune. Nom de Dieu, I could have strangled him. What could I do? Two years. To go out of our life for two years as if I had been struck dead. Yet, after two years, I could come back and say what I chose. I signed the contract. I went out of the house. I kept my word. Noblesse oblige. I was Gaston de Nerac. I came back to Paris. I worked night and day for eighteen months. I had genius. I had hope. I had youth. I had faith. She would never marry the Comte de Venouille. She would not marry anybody. I counted the days. Meanwhile, he posed the saviour of Simon Rushworth. He poisoned Joanna's mind against me. He lied, inventing infamies. This I have heard lately. He confessed it all to her before the devil took him as a playfellow. Of one who had so cruelly treated her, all things were possible. She half believed them. At last, he told her I was dead. An acquaintance had found me in a Paris hospital and paid for my funeral. She had no reason for disbelief. He pressed his suit. Her father and mother urged her. The fool Rushworth soon afterwards came to another crisis, and de Venouille again stepped in and demanded Joanna as the price. She is gentle. She has a heart tenderer than that of any woman who has ever lived. One day I heard she had married him. My God, it is thirty years ago. 
He poured some water into the syrup glass and gulped it down. I remained silent. I had never seen him give way to violent emotion, save once, when he broke the fiddle over Mr. Polkson's head. Presently, he said, with a whimsical twist of his lips, You may have heard me speak of a crusader's mace. Yes, master. That's when I used it. I had an inspiration, he remarked quietly. Master, said I, after a while, if Madame de Vaudreuil believed you to be dead, it must have been a shock to her when she saw you alive at Aix-les-Bains. She learned soon after her marriage that her husband had been mistaken. Her mother had caught sight of me in Venice. Madame de Vaudreuil never forgave him the lie. She is gentle, my son, but she has character. It was after that, I think, that the frozen look came into her eyes. Thenceforward she was ice to the Comte de Vaudreuil, who, for pleasant domestic companionship, had to resort to his rare apes. No wonder his madness took the form of the fixed idea that he had murdered Parago. After all, he mused, there must have been some good in the man. He desired to make amends. He sent me the old contract, so that his wife should not find it after his death. He confessed everything to her before he died. There is a weak spot somewhere in the heart of the devil himself. I should wonder if he were devoted to a canary. Master, said I, suddenly bethinking me of the canary in the Rue des Saladiers, if you marry Madame de Vaudreuil, what will become of Blanquette? She will come and live with us, of course. Hmm, said I. Respect forbade downright contradiction. I could only marvel mutely at his pathetic ignorance of woman. Indeed, his reply gave me the shock of an unexpected stone wall. He, who had but recently taught me the chart of Fourchette's soul, to be unaware of elementary axioms? Did I not remember Joanna's iciness at Aix-les-Bains when I told her of his adoption of my zither-playing colleague? Was I not aware of Paul Blanquette's miserable jealousy of the beautiful lady who inquired for her master? To bring these two together seemed, even to my boy's mind, a ludicrous impossibility. Yet Parago spoke with the unhumorous gravity of a Methodist parson, and the sincerity of a maiden lady with a mission to obtain good situations for deserving girls. A man, so please you, had gone into the holes and corners of the continent of Europe in search of truth, who had come face to face with human nature naked and unashamed, who had run the gamut of femininity from our rare Princess Joanna to the murderer's widow of Prague. A man who ought to have had so sensitive a perception that the most subtle and elusive harmonies of woman were as familiar to him as their providential love of babies or their ineradicable passion for new hats. He lit another cigarette, having dadded in somewhat youthful fashion with a newly acquired case, and blew two or three contented puffs. I believe in the Roman conception of the familia, my son. You and Blanquette are included in mine. You, being a man, must go outside the world and make your way, but Blanquette, being a woman, must remain under the roof of the paterfamilias, which is myself. I foresaw trouble. When he left me after dinner to pay his promised visit to Joanna, I went in quest of Cazalet of the Sandals, with whom I spent a profitable evening discussing the question of subject in art. Bringar and Bonnet and himself had rented a dilapidated stable in Menilmonton, which they had fitted up as a studio, and, as his two colleagues were away, Cazalet had displayed his own horrific canvases all over the place. The argument, if I remember right, 
was chiefly concerned with Cazalet's subject in art over which he fought vehemently. But though the sabre of his father hung proudly on the wall, he did not challenge me to a duel. Instead, he invited me to join the trio in the rent of the studio, and I, suddenly struck with the advantage and importance of having a studio of my own, gladly accepted the proposal. When one can say, my studio, one feels that one is definitely beginning one's professional career. I left him to sleep on some contrivance of sacking which he called a bed, and trudged homewards to the boulevard Saint-Michel. Curiosity tempted me to look into the Café Delphine. It was deserted. Madame Bois opened her fat arms wide, and had it not been for the intervening counter, would have clasped me to her bosom. What had become of Monsieur Parigot? It was more than a fortnight since he had been in the café. I lied, drank a glass of beer, and went home. I could not take away Parigot's character by declaring his reversion to respectability. End of chapter 16